listening to the Pull Box Podcast, the international graphic novel book club. Here are your hosts, Curtis Finley and Michael Cohen. Hello and welcome to the very first, uh, the inaugural episode of the Pull Box Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Michael Cohen. And I am the other host, Curtis Findlay. Uh, thank you guys for joining us on our very first episode. We're really excited to talk about uh, a, actually a very wide array of comics right here in our first episode. It's kind of it's kind of great. Uh, yeah, and I think that's one of the things that we are purposely doing with this yeah. this podcast is to choose a wide variety for uh, so that we're not talking about the same thing in every episode. Yeah. Um, but also to hopefully let you, the listener, the reader. Um, experience something that you haven't experienced before in comics. Yeah, comics themselves are so wide and 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 uh, I don't know. There's there's so much out there. Yeah. Why not uh, let you know about something that you may have overlooked before? Yeah, well, it's such a huge medium, and I think when you say comic book, so many people just go immediately to Spider Man or Superman or you know like those classic or Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, and... yeah. Th- there's there's not really. Um, there's not really a larger understanding of comics in mainstream culture, but those of us who do know comics and know that there are so many different kinds of comics, uh, it's it's cool to find a place to congregate and and talk about that stuff. Usually that happens in the comic book store, mm-hmm. uh, but but we're gonna kind of hopefully bring that into everybody's uh, iPod, uh, iPhone, yep, um, and and uh, and we can have this. As you you've coined it as an international comic book club, which I really love that description of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my dad of all people asked me like, "What's this pull box podcast thing?" <laughs> and I went, "Well, uh, it's like an international comic book club." And he was like, "Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, uh, it it yeah. says everything you need to know about the comic uh, about the the podcast, uh, all in three words, which well, is awesome." And I I, I read comics that. I really want to talk to somebody about mm-hmm. them afterwards, but like then nobody I know has read them. Yeah. Oh, or um, or maybe the one or two people have read them, but they're not the type that I'm I'm gonna converse with or whatever. So to have a, a, a format like this, yeah, where we where first of all I know you like to talk about comics, <laughs> and I like to talk to you, to you about comics as well, yeah. um, and then to get people to, to write in uh, with their opinions is what I what I really want because then I get to finally get some things off of my my chest or off my mind that I, yeah. I really want to talk about so that's a uh, that's kind of neat too and I am um, a little background about myself um, I got superheroed out um, around the time of Marvel's Civil War mm-hmm. when uh, they started doing these huge huge story arcs that affected all the all of the, the titles and led into next summer's big event and they just kept yeah. on building and building and I was like I just can't I need to step back and and not be a part of this anymore so yeah. and that's the point where I started learning a little bit more about the the wide world of comics and I started reading tons of other stuff that that didn't have anything to do with superheroes and that's what I'm hoping to bring to the table here so my selections awesome. will most likely be uh not superheroes, yeah. Or if they are superheroes, it will be in a very uh, unconventional way. So, yeah, that's that's where I am at. Um, yeah, I mean, and I, I come at it from. I think I think like we come at comics from a very similar place. Um, but I tend to use. 
I tend to use Marvel and DC as a way of like almost like when I'm sick of one, I'll just jump to the other. Yeah. So I, I mean, when I was a kid, there was no differentiation, right? One of my favorite comic books was Spider-Man versus Superman, <laughs> yeah. um, which I had in like the giant format. And, uh, and it was only brought out on special occasions. Like I'd have to, my dad would keep it in the bottom of his, uh, of his drawer of like his dresser to keep it, to keep it flat. Yeah. yeah, Cause it didn't go, it didn't fit anywhere else. So I'd have to go and I have to ask him, he'd have to pull it out. Then I'd flip through it and let him know when I was done and put it back. Um, but, uh, and, and I, I was surrounded by comics from a really young age um, my dad really being super influential in that respect, going to garage sales and just coming back with boxes, just like somebody would be getting rid of their entire collection. And he wouldn't even, this is the best part of my, my uh, exposure to comics as a kid. We're talking about six or seven years old when this started. He would not go through the <laughs> comics first. He'd yeah. just be like, oh, a box of comics for five bucks? Here's five bucks. And he'd bring it home to me and be like, comic books enjoy yeah. um, here's a stack of heavy metal or yeah, Punisher War Journal <laughs> you're not like that's not even an exaggeration like I'd be flipping through and it's like oh Jonah Hex what's this yeah and I'd open it up and start looking and it's like just full of gore and just this really <laughs> sort of off the wall horror western stuff even though that's a little bit older and so it's a little bit more tame in the art style and that sort of thing but still like but a six-year-old for a six-year-old it's like who is this guy the the hero is the dude with the half burned face like that doesn't really look like a hero um so i've i've always felt very like surrounded by comics but i i definitely zero in on the superhero stuff um that's not to say that i don't enjoy that other aspect of comics the 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 more off the beaten path stuff um but I do tend to fall back on the mainstream. Right now, I'm on a huge Marvel kick, um, which you guys will probably notice over over the first few episodes because Marvel is doing some really cool stuff right now. And I am very anti-DC since New 52, <laughs> which you'll probably also hear lots about. Right. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I'm, I'm probably a pretty typical comic book reader. I think I, I, I read a lot of the things that everybody else is reading. I follow a lot of the writers that everybody else follows. But there are those few pieces I hope that I'll that I'll be able to to throw in. I just reorganized a lot of my collection over this weekend, so um, I've been looking through stuff, going like, "Oh, it'll be cool to get to that." <laughs> but but I think it'll also be really good to have that balance uh, where I bring in the mainstream stuff. And then you find that more uh, off the beaten path. And then our readers can jump back and forth. Reader listeners. I think we'll just call them readers. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, uh, they can they can throw curveballs every so often. So sometimes we'll be more superhero heavy. Sometimes we'll be more with the weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, this month, it's a combination it's kind, of the it's, two, it's, it's right? Both. It's yep. kind of perfect. So And that's great because I... I didn't. I hadn't read Escapists, mm-hmm. and so this. I was happy to to read something yeah. I haven't read based on someone else's recommendation. That's exactly what I want to happen to me. Absolutely. So I think this is. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be great. Cool. So without further ado, let's jump in to the first book, which uh, this will be my pull for for our first episode uh, for April, and that's All New X Men Volume One: Yesterday's X Men. I. Now, a little bit about why I chose this book. Um, Coming off of 
one of those summer events, one of those big, uh, uh, you know, crossover, crazy extravaganzas, uh, uh, Avengers versus X-Men. Going into when I heard the concept, I think I probably had a very similar reaction to what you would, which because I am very tired of events. DC definitely beat that into the ground with uh, uh, Sinestro Corps, Fifty Two, like, yeah, and then okay. and then uh, uh, Infinite Crisis, and then oh, all other crises, uh, crises, <laughs> yeah, and then there was the Blackest Night, and then there was Brightest Day, and then there was the War of Light, and. It's just been sort of one thing after the other with DC leading up to the new 52 and rebooting everything. Yeah. Um, and now they haven't really done an event since then, I don't think, but I wouldn't know because I'm not really following it. But Marvel also does these sort of big events where they cross everybody over and they bring everybody together. But with Avengers versus X-Men, it sounds on paper like the dumbest thing ever. You're like, yeah, why yeah. would the Avengers fight the X-Men? You've run out of ideas. Why aren't there? Why why don't superheroes fight supervillains anymore? Why are they always fighting each other all the time? But I I I don't remember. What, oh, I no, I do remember what it was when I saw the images. Of, this is spoilers for Avengers versus X Men. Let's just put it out there that all of these books are. There's going to be a lot of spoilers. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of spoilers. Yeah. So. Um, and this is the thing with comics. Comics are different than movies and TV. I had to explain this uh, to somebody the other day. Because comics get solicited ahead of time. And a lot of the time, like, let's say, what's a, what's what's one of the biggest uh, uh, twists in comics? When Green Arrow walks in on Speedy shooting up, right? right? And well, it was right on the cover. It's right on the cover. <laughs> yeah. That's the whole thing, right? And it's not about the twist. It's about... The reaction. Oh, oh my gosh, yeah. how did they get there? And then the fallout from it. That's yeah. always that's what comic books are about. So we'll talk spoilers, and hopefully, what this will do is you'll go, oh, oh, that's intriguing. Maybe I will read Avengers versus X Men if you were passing it up. Yeah. So I remember seeing when uh, the Phoenix Force gets split up and and melds with Cyclops and Colossus and and uh, Emma Frost and uh, I think Magic is the other one. I think that's the whole group. Um, and I remember seeing Cyclops in particular and thinking like, well, he looks really cool like that, but I wonder what's going on. And also like the Phoenix Force, like that's a, like for those who know comics lore, the Phoenix Force is one of the, like the, the big, the, the, yeah, one of yeah. the huge, huge storylines from classic comics. So that intrigued me enough that I went, you know what, I'll pick it up on when it comes out in trades. And, and it came out as a trade and I read through it and I was just like, what is going on with my brain because i read through and uh and and at the beginning i'm like oh i'm totally with the avengers on this one the x-men are like messed up because wolverine is with the avengers and beast is kind of with the avengers and then you've got essentially cyclops and a few that have kind of gone almost a little bit rogue since the whole endangered species house of m sort of stuff um and they're just trying to keep mutants alive. And over the course of that book, what I found was Cyclops is right. And it's like, it's that, that same mentality that people had initially towards Magneto, where you're like, Magneto's a bad guy. And then after a while, you see Sentinels and mutant viruses and Apocalypse and all of these different things that make you go, actually, I think 
maybe Magneto is right. Like, maybe mutants do need to band together and fight against humanity in order to survive and that sort of thing. Because really, the humans are the bad guys in a lot of X-Men comics. Yeah. And and you, I went into it with the opinion that Cyclops was, yeah. was a jerk, right? Because that's what everybody... That's sort of the the in thing to think is, is ah Cyclops is such a jerk. Wolverine's the cool one, right? And I came out of it going, in particular, like Captain America is kind of being really unreasonable with this, which I never thought that I would say because Cap is usually a very rational, reasonable person. But when the entire galaxy is at stake, he can be a little bit stubborn. <laughs> um, but but then finding myself on Cyclops's side, going. If it were me, if that were me in his situation, I would do everything that he's doing. I would make the same choices. So leading out of that into all new X-Men, I was like, the the premise of all new X-Men, I guess, is the most important part. Uh, Hank McCoy, Beast, travels back in time to when the X-Men were formed soon after, and he grabs the original five, the original roster, Cyclops, uh, Marvel Girl, also known as Jean Grey, uh, Beast, Angel, and Iceman. And he brings them to the future in the hopes that seeing their younger selves, uh, they, they Cyclops and maybe some of the other mutants that have sort of gone off the path, will realize what they've done wrong, the mistakes that they've made, and then come back into the fold and the X-Men can be one big happy family again. Um, what you end up with is the the original X-Men just like completely blown away by the future and everything that's happened to them as they sort of discover bits and pieces of the timeline and like find out like <laughs> one of the best things is is Angel going through and going okay I see what's happened to everybody else would Where's somebody me? <laughs> tell me what happens to me yeah. it's really bothering me that no one is saying anything about it. No one will answer my questions. Because, again, classic comic storylines, the whole Archangel storyline is just crazy, right? Well, and I I haven't been reading X-Men for years, so I don't even know what's happening with Angel either. I have no (laughs) idea. And so I'm asking the same question, and um, I haven't gone on to read any further volumes, so hopefully it'll be answered. But... uh, um, yeah, what is Angel up to? So Angel, in a nutshell, Angel was Archangel. Like Angel was Angel, yeah, to begin with. Just well, I mean, I know, kid. I know up until yeah. Civil War. But so, what's he currently doing? I I don't know what he's been up to recently because like I kind of jump on and off with X Men because they tend to burn you after a while because yeah. they'll go check out this awesome title like X-Force when they relaunched X-Force with Wolverine as the leader and then eventually they cross it over with everybody else so you have to read all of the X titles that's why I don't and then they uncross and you're like wait but I'm but now I'm lost yeah I'm confused now Uh, what title should I be reading yeah Um, so and uh, Archangel Angel is one of those characters that he comes in and out now and I think it's because nobody really knows how to use him yeah up until this book where I'm like there's something interesting going on here. Um, and Angel is one of those characters whose past is so twisted and knotted that uh, the character's a little bit crazy, right? Like, he's a little okay. insane just by virtue of everything he's ever been through. So I think where he's at right now is just... Because I remember in, in, I guess it was like the late 90s, early 2000s, when he came back 
and he lost the metal wings. Right. Right. And he kind of went crazy then. Yeah. So I think that there's just elements of that still in his character where he's a little bit nutty. Well, and I remember, I think it was during Morrison's run in the early 2000s. Hmm. That's the last time I heard of Angels when he, they realized his blood had healing powers or yes. something like that. Yeah, and yeah. then he, then he ran away with Husk from Generation X and they yeah. had a little fling or something. I don't know. Uh, and then I never saw him again. So I—that's the last time. I yeah, saw yeah. Him. He's he, he, it's difficult to follow him because, like I said, he comes in and out. He's yeah. never really a part yeah, of the team. Yeah, he's he's for... never a key player when any writer yeah. when new writer comes on board and forms their X Men team. Yeah. Like he's never really chosen. Yeah, the the last time that I read anything with Angel was during X Force. I think it was the second arc they end up bringing him in. Oh, okay, and he was like a stone cold killer huh. at that point, and just like ruthless right so he was more the archangel character than he was angel and i don't really know why that happened or like when he became like that again and when he became blonde-haired feather-winged angel again or do, does he have feather wings in this i don't I remember. think he does yeah didn't his didn't yeah didn't his wings grow uh, anyway we're we're digressing yeah here. we're totally <laughs> digressing uh we can get um, back to um all new x-men here yeah but i uh, essentially like by bringing the characters into the future, they uh, they they screw up the timeline, which the X Men are fantastic at. They're they're probably of all of the comic book, but they wrote it. They, they wrote an out to that right yeah. at the very beginning, saying, "Oh, Professor X will just clean our brains once we yeah. return, so nothing is going to be affected." Except that, that they haven't gone back, right? And well, except, except that, that but they, they eventually to go will go back. I'm sure. Sure, at some point, this will all come to a head, and they'll and they'll go home. But I. But just on that Cyclops uh, uh, angle of it, it's it's made the character even more fascinating to me. Uh, post Avengers versus X Men, with my feelings towards Cyclops as they are, mm-hmm. and then having young Cyclops show up and uh, having to confront all of the issues that he's caused, and seeing himself uh, the, the 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 version of Cyclops that is fighting Magneto seeing present day Cyclops who is with Magneto. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. they're on that the would same blow your side. Mind. Yeah. And it's uh, you have to think back to what the comics were like when the X Men formed, um, and how polarized it was. There wasn't much of a gray area because it was the sixties and yep. Magneto was a bad guy. And the bad guys are bad guys and the good guys are good guys. It wasn't until later in the seventies and the eighties that they started going, wait a second Magneto is a concentration camp survivor and he's got all these issues. Yeah, yeah. There's, there are reasons story. why he feels the way that he feels and you start going, like I said, that Magneto was right. And then you get to this point where you go, Cyclops is right. And it's just that whole element of the character um, where I think a lot of people go like, Cyclops is a jerk. For me, it, Cyclops is misunderstood. He has a lot of responsibility. He has a lot on his shoulders. He's the leader of the mutants, of, of, of a new race of homo superior, right? Uh, and that is a lot to have on your shoulders, especially when Professor X is gone and you're the one who murdered him. So, <laughs> so on both sides of it, you're getting these great elements of the character as he sort of reflects on who he was and then who he was reflects on who he's going to become and saying, I'm never going to be that person. Right. And it, it brings up really interesting 
moral issues with time travel. Yeah. And uh, and 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 it just it I think it's a it's a fantastic jumping off point. And then having just read volume two because it just came out in soft cover, um, it it just continues like they just keep going forward. Uh, and and exploring more and more, mm-hmm. and I think the X Men are always at their best when they're exploring what it is to be a mutant and what that means and what the responsibility is, rather than when they're just fighting apocalypse or punching sentinels in the face, right? So yeah, and the the interesting thing about Cyclops's position here now is that he is he's fighting, mm-hmm. but he's also fighting X Men like the quote-unquote good x-men or whatever you want to call them but for for them he's fighting them for their sake yeah um so it's not like he's gone really gone rogue and he's now a bad guy and they're gonna fight because this is good versus bad no he's still he's still good he's just fighting he's just coming at it from a different angle yeah and he everything that he's doing he's doing for his group of mutants but he's also doing for all of those other groups of mutants too so it's um it's yeah, it's different than Magneto's Magneto's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, one of my well, first of all, um, I'll, I'll start off by saying I, I did enjoy this a lot. Okay. Um, I, I it was a it's a great concept. I thought it was uh, pretty well executed here, and um, it was it's nice to see. I love those those um, any. Like this is a classic comic book scenario here, bringing someone from the past to meet their future, or yeah. something like that, or someone from the past going to the, or someone from the future going to the past to meet their former selves, or whatever. Yeah. And it's just that how 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 are they going to react to seeing each other and what they've become? Yeah. Um. And, and they did a good job of that here, and like you said, um, Cyclops's reaction is is great, and I can see that the team is probably the original team is going to splinter. Yeah. Um, and and go their own directions or whatever because they're not of all, not they don't all have the same opinion. Um, what I I found a little bit. Uh, what I realize now with the X Men today versus the X Men of the sixties is that the focus, it, it, the the heart the core of X Men I think is quite different now. Mm-hmm. And in the sixties, it was it was used as an analogy for racism, right? It's like yeah. you had the, the, the misunderstood oppressed race that um, people mistreated and, and hurt just simply because of who they were, not for any other good reason. Um, but you flash forward to now and this X-Men, that's not what they stand for, I don't think. Uh, that's They're not fighting... Like I don't see this as a racism issue anymore. Yeah. Right. Um, it's, it's they're yeah they're an endangered species. Is, that's what one of the story arcs was called, right? And that's that's what it is. So they're fighting for their survival. They're not fighting for, um, equality anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that really changes the, how every story is going to be written for X Men now. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing, and. Uh, yeah, I um I really liked the art in this. And I remember I was uh what was it? It was Ultimate X-Men and then Ultimate Spider-Man when I, when I first heard of Stuart Monin. Um and I wasn't quite a fan of his at that time. Mm-hmm. And I found that his style was very very angular and very like he he used um kind of flat shadows and yeah. 
Um, so, and I wasn't a huge fan of his A lot faces. of things kind of had a lot of gloss to them, yeah. I think. Like, back in those early days of the Ultimate stuff, it, it like you're saying, the flat shadows, mm-hmm. it kind of made everything look like it was, like, especially, and thinking of Spider-Man and what he looked like when Ultimate started, there was a lot of that sort of glossy look to him that made him look very different from the regular continuity Spider-Man. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I, I would agree. But he's really kind of come into uh, a, a great classic uh, and I don't, I, I'm almost tempted to say generic because it's almost kind of just like a very standard comic book style mm-hmm. but um, one of my favorite things about the art in this book is how easy it reads yeah and that's a thing that a lot of artists and a lot I, I think a lot of readers take for granted or don't notice don't think about when they're reading and certain artists will make your job as the reader so much easier and and uh, uh, it's all storytelling. And Stuart Eminent is one of those artists that can make it, he, the flow of a page makes sense. Yeah. And you just kind of follow it, and you're not really confused all that much. And that's something he's always been good at. Even back when when I wasn't as fan of his artwork, his layouts, his page layouts, and his panel layouts have always yeah. been really great. Um, and this one, um, I, I noticed that he sticks very, very much to his his regimented panels so yeah. it's easy to read and I like that now where his layouts fall apart those when there's action um, the action scenes I find that he starts to be a little bit more creative with his panel layouts and there's this one panel here where he just lops off this guy's head there's no reason for that yeah. Um, yeah. but he wanted I don't even know what he was trying to accomplish with that but I find that there was a couple of times in here where once the action starts he gets a little bit more creative and it doesn't read as easy. Um, I much prefer him sticking to his his straight, you know, five or six panel yeah. per page layout. And, and I mean that cleaner. that said, one of the great things about this book is how seldom they go to the action. Yeah, there's there's a lot of talking in it. There's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of story that happens mm-hmm. um, and character development. I mean, we haven't even talked about Jean Grey, <laughs> and she really is, I think one of the central characters of this story Hmm. because it's it's one of the underrated things i think about the book that nobody's really talking about is that gene gray's been gone for a very long time Uh, yeah i really think it's since like the morrison stuff right morrison's when she is that when she died the second or third time or something but yeah, yeah she has been well and that's one of the things i've been telling people as i've been talking about this book um is that Jean Grey is one of the characters that had, who died back yeah. in the 80s with the Phoenix, the Dark Phoenix saga, and has really pretty much stayed dead the entire time. She's yeah. come back to life, but she always returns back dead. Yeah. Whereas, you know, uh, Colossus was dead, but he's back. And he's yeah. back for this. Superman died, but he's back. Spider-Man, yeah. did Spider-Man die? He probably did at some point. He's he's back again. <laughs> yeah, he just did. We'll, we'll, did he? We'll get, well, we'll get to that at some oh, yeah, point. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's gonna, right, of course. We'll talk about Superior at some point. Yeah, yeah. That's probably my favorite title right now. But they, they, it's, um, it's now become a comic book trope, yeah. almost. The, the, a character dies, but you know they're not really going to die. Yeah. They come back. But Jean Grey has stayed stayed dead. Yeah, when she dies, she dies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's... There's an interesting thing about comic book death, and it's that it tends to be very impermanent or flexible, right? right. So when you say uh, Spider-Man died, did he die? <laughs> kind of. They always find a way to. There was a yeah. there was a brain a swap, and then Doctor Octopus's body died, and 
Peter Parker's mind was in there. But then, like, and this isn't giving away too much. Within the first, I think, issue of Superior Spider-Man, you find out, no, Peter Parker's mind He's is still, still in there, there somewhere. Yep. So, well, so, yeah, like, no, Grey, no one ever really dies, except, you're right, Jean Grey. Well, and it's, in, in it's more, right in the Phoenix character, yeah. right? Like, it's, it's in that That's name. The, she has to the die. The purpose of the Phoenix is, yeah. is to come back, and, yeah. but she always returns to death as well. And the yeah. last time she died, it with Morrison, if that was really the last time, um, her, she was like atomized. All of her atoms were totally yeah. burned up in the sun or something yeah. like that. Um, so, and you can see how much that hurts with every character's reaction. Yes. Like it, de- it's devastated them that she's gone. Yeah. Um, and it still devastates them even though it's been several years. I don't yeah. know in comic book time how much that's actually been. But um, to see Beast's reaction when he first sees her again, yeah. uh, Wolverine just smelling her from a distance throws him into a rage. Um, Cyclops is, is a mess. Um, that's that's going to play in heavy, I'm sure, yeah. coming up. And she, yeah. like you said, she's going to be a central character. I can see that just yeah. from those reactions. Yeah. And uh, and they also uh, they bring in an awesome element that has been missing in a lot of X Men comics because we've been dealing with the same X Men for so long, and they always have their new class sort of thing. Uh, or like they've yeah, gotten, every character or every writer that comes on board has to insert one or two new characters to yeah. see if their character will stick. Yeah, yeah, it'd be the next Nightcrawler. Yeah. or uh, or uh, Husk is one of those characters that kind of like was around and then not around. And, well, is she, is she um, dead now? I think I used to read Generation X a lot. That was one of my know. favorite comic books um, back in the nineties, and for about you know twenty issues, and then it yeah. was terrible after that. But I think all of those characters have died. Have died except for Jubilee. I okay. think they're all. I think they're all gone, which is too bad because they had some really, really good ones there. But yeah, one of the things that they bring in is is Jean. She's got the telekinesis. Yeah. When it starts. Oh yeah, and that then, was neat. And then they like the, the be trauma slips. of Oops. it. Yeah, <laughs> the trauma of it, and when it like sort of gets mentioned, then it's like they like, sort of once the cat's out of the bag, her her uh, telepathic powers just start. Yeah coming on fast and 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 powerful and without professor x there to teach her how to use them it's like you you end up with uh kitty who has become professor x in in sort of a manner um teaching her how to use her powers which is not something that we get to see with the classic x-men with the characters that we know and love we get to see it with these other weird characters like surge and like other characters that to me although they've now been around for quite a while they just feel kind of impermanent. Like you just you never know when they're going to be gone. When the the new X Men yeah. are are going to be they're really old only X-Men and we get new new X Men. They're only there to remind us that oh yeah, this is a school. it's a school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Wolverine and Cyclops and Beast are all old men now. Yeah, right? like like Cyclops. Uh, when you read him in this book you really do get the sense that he's really weary. He's He's been at this for a very long time. And the way that comic book timelines work, they uh, the, the original X-Men are from the 60s and the current X-Men are in the, you know, contemporary 2014. Yeah. But did that many years pass? No. No, of like, course not. Like only like 20 years has passed. So Scott was 20 when he started, and now he's, like, in his early 40s. So it doesn't really make sense, but for the character, it makes sense. Yeah. And that's one of the things you have to kind of get past and then understand. Um, But you can really read on 
old Scott's face that that he's tired and he doesn't want to fight anymore, but he feels like he has to fight. And it's sort of um, when he sees Gene, it's one of those things where he's like, you see that he wants to stop. He just wants to everything to go back to the way that it was. But because of what Scarlet Witch did, wiping out most of the mutants, they can't, right? Like, it's just that endangered species yeah. thing. They have to constantly fight to survive. Yeah. Um, and so one story element in here, um, one of the one of the new characters, they, I guess she, or there's like there's a guy and there's a girl mm-hmm. and they both develop powers yeah and so they're coming back i didn't quite understand what uh like cyclops and his team are now rounding up these new mutants who have started appearing yeah so part of avengers versus x-men uh is that there's this character hope who uh <laughs> during the endangered species stuff uh hope was born and she was the first mutant born since House so Scarlet of, Witch. Yeah, yeah, since Scarlet Witch wiped out mutants. Um, so there was a big fight for her, for Hope. And what ended up happening was Hope went with Cable into the future, of course. And then they went time hopping. Yeah, and we did like a time skip, and she was a, a teenager. Okay, and and he was teaching her to use her powers during Avengers versus X Men. Hope is the one who the Phoenix Force was coming for. It was it, she's essentially the new Jean Grey, although she's got kind of a weird mishmash of powers. I thought Rachel um, Summers was the new Jean Grey. <laughs> well, it's 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 interesting because Rachel Summers was there, but I uh, she was part of Avengers versus X Men, oh, okay. which is very odd because then you've got Hope and you have Rachel Summers, and it's like Hope isn't of the 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 Jean Grey bloodline. But somehow, like, she's got red hair. She's got some oh, yeah. <laughs> telekinetic powers along with some other stuff. Like, she's, she's a, for all intents and purposes, the new Jean Grey. But surrounded by all this other controversy and stuff. Right. So when she came back, it became apparent that mutants were coming back. And it's sort of been a, a, an upward curve uh, on, on them appearing. And now we're at the point, we're at the tipping point where mutants are starting to pop up all over the place so um whereas wolverine and the x-men uh, which is sort of your quote-unquote good x-men um the ones who they they are still at xavier's school although they've renamed it the, the Jean, Jean gray institute for something or other yeah um they're not really looking to find new mutants if a crisis happens and they find a new mutant they'll they'll bring them in but Scott is actively recruiting for his X-Men, uh, which I think it's a very interesting difference in the way that they're doing things. And what is he teaching them? Is, it, is he teaching them how to use their powers, or is he training them to use their powers for his purposes? See, I think that's one of the interesting parts, is that, because now we're getting into, I think, more, uh, I think it's, it's, maybe it's Astonishing X-Men is the, is the book that that is about Cyclops and his X-Men. So this kind oh, of three yeah, they, books right they now. relaunched Uncanny X-Men. Like yes, that's what uncanny. that's the ad yeah, the, at right. the back of this book. That's here. right. It's Uncanny. So um there's three books going on. There's Wolverine and the X-Men, there's Uncanny X-Men and there's All New X-Men. And there's sort of these three different factions. Um All New being the original X-Men, Uncanny being Cyclops and his team and Wolverine obviously being 
that side of things. So I think that that with Uncanny, Cyclops thinks that he's following through on on Professor X's legacy, like that that that's he's he's fulfilling his dream. But what's really happening is that I think Magneto's manipulating it a lot. I think uh, that magic uh, and uh, I think Colossus is with them as well um, because of the fact that magic is with them because they're brother and sister. I uh, I think she's really like pushing Scott a lot in that direction because she's always been kind of a little bit more of a ruthless character, um, and so S- Scott doesn't know that he's sort of creating an army and that he's the brotherhood mm. right because right. that's really yep. what they are like they're the brotherhood of mutants yep. they just don't know it now the brotherhood's also out there and they're also a concern but well and I wonder if Magneto it's, it's is interesting. is playing along with it yeah um, because he's gonna you know he he could still be you know quote unquote a bad X-Men although I guess he I don't know his history but he seems to have been partnering with them for a long time hasn't he I think really since like the the uh, the movie came out, they've tried to pull Magneto into into the X team. So okay. it's it's been a lot of like the camaraderie between yeah. him and. and but at any time, X. he could switch back to his old ways, yeah. and he'll now have a Cyclops built army of mutants exactly. ready for him to to go um, and conquer the world. And I wouldn't be surprised if that or something similar to that happens. Uh, and I, I, this is the thing. This is the really interesting thing. We're so behind because X-Men in issues right now is way further ahead. It's like three or four volumes in. Oh. And volume two has just come out. So people who are, listening, who are one. listening to this podcast who are up to date are laughing yeah. at us right now. Yeah, think? yeah okay. exactly. But uh, I mean, we'll get there eventually. But um, yeah, it's, I, think, I think it's interesting to see how the dynamics are going to play out. And the most important thing about this volume... And, and I think a lot of the time I'll probably pick volume one so that it's a good jumping on point for people. Um, but this is really about establishing where the characters, where the players are on the chessboard. Yeah. And I, I can say for sure, volume two starts to move those pieces. You start to yeah. see exactly uh, where some characters are going to end up and, uh, and, and how that's going to affect the original X-Men. Um, and why they might not be going back. Because I can tell you, in the current comics, uh, they are in space. <laughs> and right. okay. uh, they've teamed up with Guardians of the Galaxy. Because so. the movie's coming yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so there's some cross-promotion there. Yep. One of the best things, and the thing that I am so psyched about, and the reason why I'm so excited, or so happy that I've chosen to jump on this bandwagon right now, is that young Cyclops is going to end up with the Corsairs. Or with, with, with his dad, with, with yeah. his dad, with Corsair, or like and and have the childhood he never had, exactly <laughs> in and space, in space, and as a it's like Han Solo and Cyclops kicking around Marvel space, yeah, yeah, hanging out with the Guardians of the Galaxy, like that to me is is uh, that's about as good as comic books get, you know. So I'm really excited <laughs> to see how we get from where we are now to that point, and uh, and I really like their new costumes. Yeah. <laughs> that, oh, I haven't seen them later yeah. on. I haven't so. seen them yet. Yeah. Now you mentioned one thing about this one this one volume, the first volume being the establishing volume, yeah. and um, of course because I I've been out of the loop with superheroes, that's one of the things that's on my mind is how easy is this for me to jump into yeah. and uh, and be a part of, and I thought they did a really good job yeah. uh, doing that. Uh, there, of course, there's tons of questions sure. because of the, their out of control powers and 
um, the, the whole Phoenix story and, and yeah. why is Cyclops on this side and all that kind of stuff. But it does entice me to go back and read some. Um, and this also entices me to go forward and continue reading all new X-Men. So, yeah. I mean, it's done its job. I think it's, it's done a good job there. Um, if this comic, if this story were written in the 60s, yeah. it would have been one issue. Yes. Um <laughs> And then if it were written in the 80s, it would have been two issues. <laughs> yeah. Like, Days of Future Past is only two issues of yeah. X Uncanny X-Men. And if this was written in the early 90s, it would have been... I mean, the late 90s, it would have been six issues. Yeah. Um, but now we have... This story is probably going to be six graphic novels yeah. or six trades. Yeah. Um, and part of me says that is just a little too long. Um, mm. It For... for a concept that we know is a gimmick. Yeah. Um, do we really need it to be two years long? Now, I'll, I'll uh, sort of contest that with Superior Spider-Man. So we won't get too much into details. But Superior Spider-Man is going to be six volumes when it's done. Yeah. Uh, maybe seven. But uh, I'm pretty sure six. Now, Superior Spider-Man is a little bit different because it's a bi-weekly. So that means okay. uh, they get you crank them out in faster. half the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but... Do you feel like Superior has been going on too long? Yeah, and I've only read what you lent me recently, which yeah. is four volumes, I think. Volume four, I... You sent me you sent me three volumes and the team-up volume. I yes. Yeah. Now, and I already feel like that one, like the, it, this each, each trade yeah. has the same path. It has the same pattern. It's... Um, Doctor Octopus establishes what he's gonna do, yeah. and he's like, "I am gonna be a better, uh, better Spider-Man than Peter Parker ever was." How does he do this? I can't believe he's such an idiot. Um, oh, maybe there is a little bit more to this hero thing, and that happened in every single volume. I'm like, yeah. and of course, yeah, he does grow and he's got his army and things do happen, but the themes are very repetitive yes. still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Volume 4 breaks that because Volume 4 is terrible. Okay. Um, and then Volume 5 picks it back up with Venom and uh, and the symbiote and yeah. goes to a very interesting place. So before you leave, you'll leave with those. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> and so that we can talk about that at some point. But um, we have a, we have an email. We have some feedback yeah. uh, about all new X-Men. Why don't, we, uh, why don't we hear about that? Yes. So Eric writes in and says... Uh, when I first heard about the concept of all-new X-Men, I thought it was a terrible idea. Not only are they going to mess up continuity, but I was also afraid that the X-Men comics would start to go down the path of rehashing all the old ideas from 30 years ago. And then he says in brackets, see Spider-Man post one more day. However, I picked it up because the art is excellent, and also to see how they justify the action of bringing the students to the present. And I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised. So that's good. Um, then he goes on to say that um, he talks about Brian Michael Bendis, the writer. I know there are many people who like to slam Bendis for being very wordy, but I think that he does it very well um, and only does it when a situation or character calls for that kind of speech. In this case, we're dealing with teenagers uh, from the present and the past, uh, and teenagers tend to talk a lot. We're also dealing with this um, awkward situation and people tend to ramble when they're nervous, anxious, or awkward. Um, and furthermore, Bendis clearly has a strong grasp on who the who the characters are. Um, I think he did a great job of writing the original X-Men as they were back in the day, 
but he also did an excellent job of tweaking their personalities and character through the events that unfold to make them fresh and new and modern. In fact, you don't even realize, you're t uh, realize it until you take a step back that um, the teens at the end of the volume are quite different from the te teens at the beginning. Bendis' changes here are so organic to the characters and the story that at least I didn't notice the drastic change that I was reading. Now, um, coincidentally, I've been reading old 1960s X-Men, mm -hmm. and they're not, they're not exactly the same. And I think that's, that's because you can't write a 1960s character now yeah. and have it come off as believable. Yeah, Because there's be so camp. much campy and, yeah. and cheesiness to, surrounding it. Um, but, um, but yeah, he does, he does do a good job. I think that he could play up the teenager aspect a little bit more. He still, yeah. they still feel like adults. I think, yeah. to me, in these comics, I, I kind of had placed them more because they're supposed to have been at it for a little bit, right? Like they're yeah. a team. They're not quite, they're not quite the X Men yet, yeah. right? Like they're not quite the X Men that we know and love, but they're getting there, right? Um, so I kind of had placed them around like the. 1920 age range not so much the like 16 17 right which as i think that what they're supposed to be in mm -hmm. the 60s they're 16 and 17 yeah and um so i and another thing he says he asks the question by the way did young hank really have a moment of wanting to quit in the 60s due to human attacks so i flipped through all of those issues and yeah um i i I based it on when Jean Grey gets that mask that has the little points at the top. They come to yeah. the top. She gets that around issue thirty. So that if that were, was going to happen, it would have had to happen around whatever issue thirty something that was. And I couldn't find any instance okay. of that actually happening. So that's for the sake of the story. Um, but I thought a um, a good one to. I think I think it's still consistent in. with the character, right? Because yep. of all of the original X Men, uh, Beast is the one who seeks out a way to, to fix it to fix right it, yeah. to, to, to to rid himself rid of, yeah of it. to get rid of the the mutant gene um and as we know ends up becoming a big furry <laughs> uh beast and that's, that's one of the questions i had um what is i know that in morrison's run he gets the secondary mutation yeah and is the illness that he's that he's battling in this volume a continuation of that or is it something different it's a continuation yeah okay so uh, from what what I gather, what happens is uh, that secondary muta mutation took hold, um, and then he's going essentially he's an unstable, right? Like ever since he injected himself with whatever it was to stop him from being a mutant, uh, his his genes have been unstable, and so every so often he'll have these moments where it'll start to change, right? Yeah. And so he starts to change again but it becomes really clear that he's not going to survive right so it's um it's the combination of his his work and uh, and and young hank's work that stabilizes it and he ends up looking the way that he looks now mm -hmm. so i think like it's it's interesting because i don't think that he was necessarily cuz he looks more human now yeah. right he's sort of gone back cuz he was he was like a big ape when he started, right? Like he looks sort of like a, a almost caveman esque, and then he goes to the blue furry where he's kind of uh, 
wolf-like almost. Yeah. Um, and then he turns into a cat beast. Yeah. Uh, which is the Grant Morrison stuff. And now he's back. By the end of this, he's more towards that ape uh, look. Although he's definitely more animalistic than he than he was previously. But he's not as so, cat-like anymore. He's, yeah. yeah, he's not as cat-like. So he's sort of going back to that human look, which I. If they play it up later, I think will will lend itself to whatever he injected himself with continuing to work, right? Like it's it is still trying to turn him back into. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. So it could a be a, a reverse process over time now. Yeah, yeah, but, but I think like the the issue being that like it it's unstable. So it was going to kill him. He would have died. Yeah. if young Hank wasn't there to stop it from killing yeah. him right i find that a little bit of a continuity error as well um having that young hank be that smart that it was catching mistakes that old hank yeah. was making maybe hank was just careless because i he's... think they wrote in a line or two about the fact that he was younger his mind's more elastic yeah. right so and but, i think you know, that that's a then, legit thing but also going back to the 60s the comics that i've been reading he's like he's smart but he yeah. he's not that super genius not yeah. at that point yeah um that is making him out to be in this book anyway that's i think that's a yeah. that's a convention of modern comics with the yeah. super genius thing mm-hmm. everybody's a super genius um and speaking of bendis um going back to the, the email that eric wrote um the his speech bubbles i really like his writing um yeah i yeah, think so he's great and his the way he arranges and I don't know if he gets to decide how the, the speech bubbles are arranged or mm. if that's really the letterer thing but his books because they're so wordy do they have a great flow like your eye really does flow yeah. through those speech bubbles he knows how to place them um and that was one of the things about ultimate spider-man that I I really enjoyed was the uh, um was that flow it, and I can't find any examples in here that, just flipping through it but um yeah I um, he did a good job, and Bendis is—he's uh, a busy guy. Man, yeah, he's just writing everything. Yeah, he's one of those guys that's always, 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 always writing. Yeah. Well, should we uh, move on to number yeah. two? Yeah, let's let's jump over to your book. Great. Yeah, my poll for this month is "When the Wind Blows" by Raymond Briggs, and a little bit of history about this book. It came out in 1982. Um, just at the end of the Cold War, or and sort of as the Cold War was still going on. Um, so this book is really an anti-war, anti-nuclear nuclear attack kind of book. Mm-hmm. And there were a few of these books that came out around the same time, and Dr. Seuss had one called The Butter Battle Book, uh, which was an analogy, uh, analogy for this era as well. Um, Raymond Briggs is most commonly known as a children's book illustrator, um, and he did the book called The Snowman, which was made into a like a half-hour TV special okay. that gets shown like every Christmas. Um, I'm sure you've seen that. And uh, and then he had follow-up one about Father Christmas, and then and then this book comes out, um, which is very much for adults. Mm-hmm. So, and I'd be. I feel very sorry for any kid whose mom brings this home from the library <laughs> because she thinks, oh, this guy. I think uh, they did a pretty good job of throwing the subject matter right on the cover. Because <laughs> you've got the mushroom yep. cloud with the with the. But if you're right not there. looking too carefully, sure. uh, you could just 
gloss over that and the fact that it's this came out in an era where comics um you know this sort of style was very much for kids yeah um yeah he was making graphic novels before the term graphic novel was really mm-hmm. being thrown around as something um and even the snowman uh his his children's book the snowman and father christmas those are comics as well he uses the conventional panel arrangements and stuff even though snowman doesn't have any words to it um he's but he uh there's there's he'll never be known as a graphic novel or comic um icon he'll always be a children's book illustrator okay uh but this book um it's it's just uh i don't know it uh, well why don't we go straight to your thoughts what are your thoughts on when the wind blows yeah so one of the things that i said to my wife when when i started reading it (laughs) is that well this podcast is going to be interesting because uh right out of the bat curtis is is just throwing me these weird weird curveballs um it it took me uh i don't know by surprise or i i it's just just caught me off balance um, so, with with the the content, because as you get through it, it becomes more and more clear what it just what it is. Like you you see on the cover, you're like, okay, this is gonna have something to do with the Cold War, with nuclear uh, weapons. And, and we we should just um, summarize. I forgot to yeah. summarize it. This the book is an, a hypothetical situation. What if um, Britain uh, mm-hmm. was attacked? Uh, yeah. by the Russians what if they dropped a nuke right on there and so it follows this elderly couple who live in a suburb who are not um, blown away by the attack itself yeah. but are um, now have to, to survive through the, the fallout Yeah. so uh, it, it it starts off with the preparation right with, with his reading the, the pamphlets and stuff and there's a very um, uh, ironic uh, perspective on the whole sort of, if you think about the duck and cover cartoons of of the uh, of the fifties of the fifties, it's it's very similar to that. Where oh well, you know the the, the council, as he refers to it all the time, uh, has uh, given out the these uh, informational pamphlets, and the pamphlets say do this, and the pamphlets say do that. But really, this guy is just a, a, a simple guy, just a normal average person, doesn't know anything about nuclear weapons or anything of the sort um just kind of takes it all all at face value when especially from our perspective 2014 we look at it and go how would you how how would you ever conceive that any of this is going to help you we know that the radiation is going to kill you that the fallout like like you by the time the you find out that the bomb is has been launched you may as well just finish things right then and there because you're not going to survive and there's nothing that you can do about it you're you're just you're kind of out of luck um but this at times witless couple i i just kind of carries on with their life and i there's no real narrative structure to it which i think is one of the most interesting things about it because especially with comics sequential art uh, as some people would want to call it when it's this sort of thing uh, it's very structured comic books are very very you're talking about Spider-Man and, and Superior how it's just kind of 
the same like da 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 like they follow a rhythm uh, and that's because they're released in issues and those issues are collected into a story arc yep. which is collected into a trade paperback yep. which is now part of a larger arc right and and it's very formulaic and and you know there's a beginning middle and an end and it's going to end on a cliffhanger that's going to lead you on to the next issue this book never does that it doesn't have a beginning middle and an end it sort of has three acts to it but um each one is almost independent of the other right Mm -hmm. so you're just kind of reading through it going when is it going to get there when is it going to get there when is it going to get there and then by the end of it spoilers they die yeah and (laughs) and it's just sort of it's not a quick death the bomb goes off about like, that ends the first act. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the, it's sort of the, the beginning, end of the, the first act, beginning of the second. Uh, and then you just have to deal with it for the rest of the book. That that you know that these people are dead. Like yeah. that, that there's no point in them doing anything. And they're talking about like, oh, I don't feel so good. And it's like, well, yeah, n- duh. You have radiation <laughs> sickness. You're dying. Uh, put your head between your legs and just let go but they sort of in that um very british sense they just kind of keep going they keep yep. moving they put their on chin with their up and they, yeah yep. and and i think uh it's a very interesting thing to read today in canada right in order to understand perspective then in the uk yeah and they i as satirical as it is I the best satire is full of truth, right? And mm-hmm. it just sort of like Well, and I think that was his point. This is yeah. definitely a commentary on yeah. um on how um oblivious everybody is to the actual gravity of the situation. And yeah. the government is issuing these pamphlets which a lot of those ideas in the pamphlets painting your windows white and yeah. washing your dishes in in dirt and stuff like they they actually like those pamphlets actually exist. Yeah. Um they I don't know if it would be telling you to put a door up against the wall and put pillows on it but um not but it, it's just that it's uh the unpreparedness of people um because the government is telling them that they can be prepared but really they're just all lost yeah uh there's definitely that commentary the irony like you say yeah um and then the fact that the the elderly couple is oblivious after the fact they ha- they've had no teaching no one's told them anything they don't yeah. know what to expect um the other aspect i find really interesting is how they in the 80s they look back on world war Two, mm-hmm. and it's all it was like oh those were good days is what they say yeah it's like oh remember back then when you knew who the bad guys were and we and uh we used to go out to the soldiers and they give us candies and uh, that those yeah. were the memories of world war Two. Yeah. um that's the perspective um because they're so far removed from it now they yeah. don't associate that and like atomic bombs were dropped then too they should remember those things that that happened but um, they just remember the trivia from from Hiroshima. They don't remember, right? Like they don't they they never contemplate the actual human life lost. Yeah, in in those acts because and you're right. Like the perspective of where they were and who they were at the time. Yeah, that 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 is just uh, it's something that they did. The mm-hmm. Americans did it to end the war. Yeah, right. And it's a good thing. Because the war, because it ended. Was, yeah. yeah, the war was over then, and and you know we went on with our lives. And they were kids then, yeah. So they have the kid perspective of the war, yeah. Um, and the, that's why the candies and whatever, and, and, that's... and the and the I, 
almost like like urban legend yeah. rumors of like what happened. Oh, we paint our windows white because the it'll stop the the, the blast from from cooking the, us yeah, or whatever. Exactly. Like like all the shadows in the in at Hiroshima. Yeah, I right? better put on a white shirt so I don't yeah. get stripes burned into my back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And even afterwards, they they go outside and they mm-hmm. smell like what smells like a barbecue. Yeah. But those are just people cooking yeah but they're totally they just don't realize what's going on yeah and that's um it's sad and it compelled me to keep reading it that's the thing is that i i normally with something like this with this kind of material i think i'd probably give up pretty pretty quick um but a because it's for the podcast and b because the the writing is is so um fascinating mm-hmm. right like it's such a curiosity that i just had to keep going because like i said i yeah. was ke- i kept going going like where's the where's the 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 nugget right like where like if i keep digging i'll find that little kernel right in the middle right uh that'll be that thing that aha moment and you get to the end of the book and there is no aha moment the whole book <laughs> is the aha moment yeah. you have to yeah. finish it and then really like sit with it which you don't get a lot these days in anything, right? Uh, yep. uh, we're we're really force fed a lot of a lot of things nowadays because uh, the the mythic journey has been broken down into its components so well that that it's easy to just follow the instructions and tell a story. But every once in a while, somebody writes something that seems aimless. It seems purposeless until you finish it you step back and you look at the picture as a whole and then you see it's a mosaic right yeah. you're like that was really fascinating and i'm a better person for having experienced it but you couldn't see it when you were in the middle of it and yeah. it's interesting because this book is very dense with the panels oh very dense so it, it's uh, it kind of actually falls into that you it's it it's at times, it almost feels like work to get through it because well, there's so many word bubbles and the yeah. word bu- bubbles are so wordy. I mean, this if you've got a problem with Bendis, <laughs> yeah, then this is very wordy. Well, but they, if you spread it out to Marvel comic size panels, yes. you'd yeah. probably get a, a yeah. couple a couple graphic novels out of it. But um, the thing I really like is that these are ordinary people, mm-hmm. um, and they're simple. Yeah so we can relate with them and we love them almost right off the bat yeah they're so endearing that we care for them almost immediately after um because they're such a lovable couple yeah and uh and that really makes the the impact of the end even heavier yeah like if it were you wouldn't care as much if these were nasty people that you didn't like you didn't like yeah like like uh the the worst they could be accused of is gossip yeah, right. right. Like, that's, <laughs> like, like, like talking about somebody at that church on Sunday, right? Well, like, funny you should mention that because this book is actually a sequel to another book called Gentleman Jim, mm-hmm. which he um, it's him as a younger, I think, a forty something, um, but he's a he has a career as a toilet cleaner, okay, and he decides to go on this journey to find a different career, and the career that he eventually decides to be is um, a Zorro or Robin Hood type highwayman. Uh, robbing pe- robbing the rich and giving to the poor okay. and that lands him into a lot of trouble um with the law for various different reasons and it's yeah. it's really funny because he comes at it again from such an innocent 
simple way. Yeah. Um, really funny. Um, I wanted to, to, to highlight some of this art. Um, actually, why don't we, let's go to, yeah, the, let's let's go to the email. Let's jump to the email because it talks about that. Uh, this is from uh, Steve Ferguson. And uh, he just he, he talks about the art right here at the beginning. Uh, the art, the first comparison that comes to mind is Tintin and how the characters have overly round faces with basic features, dots for eyes, etc. Uh, why could this be? Perhaps reflective that the blogs are simple folk. Um, I, I think it's I think it's a, a it's a style, right? And and you like you explained the children's book. Yeah. aspect of it so i think that a lot of the artistic style comes from that and this um, is also a european style yeah. i mean he knits he uh, hits it right on the head by comparing it to yeah. tintin it has that very um franco-belgian style yeah. to it well, as well and then the watercolors as well uh, uh well, pencil crayon oh is it's it all, pencil it's crayon? all pencil crayon oh, okay yeah okay. um the thing i find fascinating about the way he arranges his panels is that because the panels are so small, mm-hmm. he really has to pick of what he's focusing on. Yeah. And there's all of these panels where you don't even see their faces. Like this one right here I'm pointing to, um, it's on, um, there's no page number, so I can't tell you. But you're just looking at their knees. Yeah. And the bubbles are, are, are covering up everything else. Or this one um, where he's, the, you can see that the speech bubbles are coming from inside the shelter. And you yeah. don't actually see him. In fact, there's very little to see in this panel. It's just basically lines of color. Yeah. Um, interesting way to to go about that is really much. It's really like you're you are a fly on the wall there, yeah. and you don't you you. It's a fixed camera, so you don't always see what's going on. Um, you're just sitting in a chair in the corner. Yeah. Um, yeah, really neat. I think. Well, it's a, I think it's got a very cinematic quality to it. Like it's very. Um, so it's a lot like looking at storyboards. Yeah. Um, because they, there are so many of them and they are it's very uniform for the most part with the exception of like a few moments where it needs to to embellish to, it yeah, yeah. To, to jump out of the panels but uh, most of it is really confined within the, that that structure and within those boxes yeah um, which makes for a very uh, sequential and very uh, structured read mm-hmm. um and, and, it, and plays to those sort of camera moves and you can you can kind of tell if it were animated or if it were a film where which the it camera is. would be they okay. did make it into an animated film a few years after this book was released okay and it's very faithful um i think because mm-hmm. you have your storyboards right here yeah, it's right there <laughs> yeah um the okay yeah let's go on with more of the email sure, yeah um he goes on to say i uh, talking about the suggestions like the, the pamphlets like we talked about before I, even with some of the suggestions given in these pamphlets I really have no idea what pillow slash door shelters are supposed to do in the event of an, of an atom bomb it is truly sad to see Jim try his damnedest to prepare without taking into account the most basic is- issue with such bombs the radiation that to me was the saddest turn but also the most realistic so we kind of talked about that and they back then uh, an atom bomb now we would call it a nuclear bomb yep. uh, it, it, the, 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 the knowledge wasn't widespread it wasn't until the 80s that that really started to become widely known the people who knew what the effects were going to be were really scientists and people in the government uh, people who had to know um, so it's, it's interesting now with our perspective to think about 
what it must have been like in the Cold War. Because uh, the nuclear threat is still something that I think that, that we live with, but, but we were born into it. And, uh, yeah. and so we don't, we don't have a, a that perspective. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the ideology that, that somebody is going to launch a nuke tomorrow. That's not something that like I go about my daily life and very rarely does it ever enter into my head unless something about North Korea is on the right. News, yeah. right? <laughs> um, but it, there, that danger does loom out there, but we don't consider it at the time in the eighties. Uh, it was heavily considered. It was it was uh, sort of hanging on a lot of people's shoulders, especially uh, the people who are our age, the age that we are now. Then yeah. were were uh, thinking about it a lot, and and that I think brought about a lot of the change that allows us to live in the world that we live in today. Yep. Right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. At the time, 1982, you're still talking about the Cold War, right? Yeah. Like that's really. It's uh, it's it's pretty crazy, um, the difference in perspective. But that knowledge and the education also being so different. Uh, we talk a lot today about Big Brother and about how the government controls information and that sort of thing. But we also have the internet. Yeah. Right. Right. So if you want to know something, uh, the truth is on the internet. You just have to discern it from the misinformation and the out and out lies. Um, you know, Wikipedia is not the most reliable source, but it's still a pretty good one. So we have the ability to go. It's a good starting and, place. At yeah, least, yeah. And go look these things up and find out somebody says something about Iran or somebody says something about Russia. We can look it up and yep. find out for ourselves. Back then, you'd go to the library, you'd ask somebody. Your Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, yeah. So, which, a couple which paragraphs. Might, <laughs> and it might be horribly outdated because it was published in 1960. Right. So, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the last thing that he says is uh, I, I think this particular story is the best kind of war story, the one that focuses on the people affected. There's no blame placed and no politics, just an old man trying to save his wife while trying to grasp that which cannot be rationalized. Which I think, like, that's a, that's a very uh, uh, good point to bring up because we never do find out who launched it and well, he, Yeah, they mentioned the, the Russians are the, the enemy this time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, that, you know, that's the Cold War for you. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we don't see if... Britain's restored or yeah. if uh, the, he also makes the, the point that at ends. one point in the story about was it the Russians that launched a nuke at us or was it the Americans that launched it right. and it went oh, off yeah. course like yeah. they don't they're, they're so far out of the loop living sort of as you say in the suburbs which is almost like the countryside yeah. uh, that that they really don't they don't know what's going on yeah. they didn't know what was going on in the in the days leading up to what happened right we don't get any of that information throughout yeah. it and then especially once the bomb hits mm-hmm. we're just as in the dark as they are which i think is really cool because it puts us in their shoes in their perspective yeah and it's not it's like i said there's no narrative it's not about the the larger yeah, we, story yeah. we don't go to the general sitting yeah. in their little war room and yeah yeah and i um i agree with that i I far more I far I like watching those types of movies better than Saving Private Ryan or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one of my my absolute favorite Studio Ghibli movie is Grave of the Fireflies, which okay. is about these two kids who live in Japan during the uh, firebombing, the American firebombing, and uh, they become orphans and have to live their life kind of by themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's very similar to this in that we only get their perspective through this, through the through that time in World War Two. And we only see what happens, and by the, you know by the end that they're not going to survive because there's no possible way that they're going to survive in the conditions that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's such an interesting commentary on on war, mm. um, and very touching, very moving, and very well done. Yeah, you'd recommend this book? I would. Yeah, I it's a uh, it, it's. It's more work than X Men, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but it is worth it. Uh, by by the time that you get through it, you'll be glad that that you've read it. It's one of those things that that you'll turn to somebody and say, "I read this book once. I read this comic once." And and people will probably give you a weird look because you're like a, a comic that was about this. And yeah. Nobody in tights. But I <laughs> uh, it it. It really does have something worth taking away, and uh, historically, I think it's it's an interesting thing. Uh, if if you want to teach somebody about the Cold War, about perspectives from the Cold War, I think that it's a really great way to introduce somebody to it, and then you can start having conversation. You can talk mm-hmm. about the Cold War because yeah. uh, I don't think that we have a lot to compare it to these days. Um, we, we live in a pretty great time. Uh, and uh, we don't have to worry about a lot of the same stuff. So uh, it, it it has that that really unique perspective that um, that I think is worthwhile, and I think people should give it a chance, even if it doesn't look like something that you'd be into. I I'm gonna assume that a lot of our listeners uh, are probably More coming the from X-Men the, the fans, superhero yeah. side, yeah. So. Uh, it might not appear at first glance to be something that's really worth digging into, but um, but it is by the end of it. Yep. I think I think you you will be a better person for having read it. And you can find it for pennies on Amazon. Yeah, uh, because it's long out. It's long. It's like it was published in the '80s, so there's millions of copies out there. Yeah. Um, and you can find it for dirt cheap. And it's just, uh, yeah, I I like it. One of my favorites. So there you go. Cool. Uh, okay, so our last pick is our reader poll, and this one comes from uh, Russell Burling Burling Game. I'm terrible with last names. Yeah, uh, good guess. But uh, he suggests The Escapist. Uh, you should check out The Escapist by Brian K. Vaughn. It's one of my favorite graf- graphic novels of the 21st century, and a sequel to Michael Chabon, uh, Chabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, a great prose novel. It deals with superheroes, real heroes, and the vagaries of comic industry ethics. Worth a read or ten. And uh, I can I can vouch for that, because this is my second time reading through this book, and it will not be my last. Mm. I, full disclosure, Brian K. Vaughn is my favorite writer uh, of, of anybody in comics from any point in time. Uh, I really think that, that he uh, understands comic books. He understands the medium, he understands what it means to people, and he pushes it in different and new directions whenever he gets the chance. And The yeah. Escapist sort of takes all three of those things and wraps it up in one um, with 
an incredibly unique and interesting narrative structure. Um, but I've read it before, so this was a reread for me. It was your first time reading. This was it. my first time, yeah. So, um, and I, um, I've read the book Cavalier and Clay um, by Michael Shaven, and it's uh, it's fantastic. Okay. And it follows um, it follows the story of two guys in the in the thirties who like they're I think they're teenagers or early twenties or something, and yeah. they decide they want to create a superhero. Um, and they're very much mimicking the lives of Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster as they create Superman. It's, yeah. There's the parallels are all throughout the book, and so they come up with this character called the Escapist, and the whole book follows their lives as they are creating this character and trying to make comic books all of the the trials that they have to face and yeah. and uh, then the successes they encounter and and then eventually later on in their years um and and then they the comic book like it run it won a pulitzer prize mm -hmm. so you know it's good writing <laughs> <laughs> um and and then the comic book world grabbed a hold of it of course because of the subject matter yeah and brought the escapist over to the comic book world so dark horse got the license to the escapist and made okay. escapist comics and then years later they came out with this book the escapists mm -hmm. um the graphic novel about these two kids who um or these two i guess they're early 20s or whatever and they they found or they're they've secured the rights to the escapist character and yeah. they aim to revitalize and bring the character back yeah um which is not an unheard of situation golden age characters come back all the time yeah um and that was a it's a fascinating premise did you read the introduction in here i did yes so the introduction is written by michael shapin and it's basically yeah um another chapter of the cavalier and clay book yeah like it's it's great i loved it and not only that it's like a brian k vaughn origin story yeah it's really cool how they've tied him into this yeah. fictional world yeah um, I really like it's, that. Uh, one of my favorite aspects of the book is is the meta narrative of it. Yeah, that there are there's there's essentially like three levels of narrative going on. There's uh, the the original uh, escapist comics, and then there's the new escapist comics, mm -hmm. and then there's the story of, of of our main characters, really the ones that are that it's about, who are building. Th this new escapist comic yeah. that have brought it back um and uh, it jumps through them and does some really cool things where uh, you'll be going through the new comic but it's the word bubbles of the conversation I, and i happening. love that and not only that but they the they switch did you notice they switch the font yeah as well so they have in i'm thinking of that black and white when he's learning how to ink um they have their the speech bubbles in the comic book font, and then as soon as he starts talking in his own face, it's, it switches to the other the other font. Yeah, I think that's uh, yeah, great touch. Um, I liked the 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 way that it laid out um, that story and using um, using the the comic book pages that Case is drawing to to break up the larger story. Yeah, to tell a story that parallels. Um, yeah, that's classic, like, lost television kind of yeah. storytelling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so the, 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 I mean, we've talked about sort of the crux of it is that this, this character, I think it's Max, is that his name? Yep. I, uh, his father was a huge escapist geek. 
essentially. That, but he never knew as a kid, and he he discovers it, and it's sort of the his father's legacy. Um, he he discovers it after his father dies. Yeah, and so it's this last piece of his dad. Uh, they, an unknown piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and so he he sort of becomes fascinated with it, and it it drives his entire life and every decision that he makes. Um, I love the the parallels between uh, between the hero, the escapist, and Max, the the protagonist of the story. He becomes an elevator repairman. Yep, um, helping which, people escape from elevators, which yeah. essentially entails him going to broken elevators, jamming a big key in it, <laughs> and turning and ripping the key. it open. Yeah, um, and these are the sorts of things that Brian Kavon does. They lends his stories to multiple readings because um, it's the sort of thing that like on your first read through you might not necessarily pick up the subtlety or nuance of that but then uh, as you go through you, you're kind of like oh oh I see what they did there and uh, when you know what's coming you you can kind of prepare yourself for it and be watching for the Easter eggs right so um, it's it, I, I think it's a it's a it's a a fascinating deconstruction of comic books and uh, and how comic books are made and why comic books are made um, and any fan of, of the genre especially the superhero genre and especially classic superhero stuff yeah. needs to read it. it it's it's sort of required reading in that aspect uh, the other uh, part of it that's really cool is that not a lot of books <laughs> intentionally have multiple artists right um but with this book it it uses that as a narrative cue so we've got um i'll just flip to the front so that i can name them all off because we've got three different artists i think yeah steve rolston is the yep. guy who does the main narrative who's actually a, 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 a local, local guy Vancouver, right? i know and uh, before i knew who he was um, I'd always see him at the little mini cons that happened here like yeah. at Heritage Hall, and he'd always be sitting at the table kind of all by himself, and I'd never go up and talk to him because yeah. I didn't know who he was. Yeah. But um, he's great, and yeah, I read him in, in Queen and Country as well, yeah. um, and he does a really good job um, uh, of, of keeping it simple um, and not comic booky, yeah. which means that we can relate to it because this is the real world. Things it's are mundane. Things are yeah. simpler, and yeah. that's our lives are are mundane as well yeah um and it is the same thing with when the wind blows the characters are drawn simply so that we can insert ourselves in there yeah um rather than the hyper realism that the other artist um which is jason sean alexander um he does the the comic book pages like the modern the modern escapist. stuff that case draws yeah, yeah. um He's got a great style. I it's similar to me like um well, who's who's the artist? Gene Ha, I think, or or Leno Francis Yu. Right. They he um it reminds me of um I guess there's an Inhumans comic that came out Marvel in the Marvel Knights era in the nineties, in the late nineties yeah. or the early two thousands. Yeah. Reminds me of that. Um, it does. Of, it does feel like that early two thousands. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like you're saying, the shadows, the 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 silhouettes, a lot of silhouettes. Yeah. Um, that it's kind of the the uh, the postmodern response to uh, Sin City, to right. Frank Miller's yeah. style. 
yep. of like very simple colors, very uh, bold shapes, but realistic. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah, and then and then we've also got some classic comic book art. Yeah, and I believe that one is that's harder to that's Eduardo Barreto, I believe. Um, and I take that from there's one cover at the back. Um, this one um, on page one seventy one, he does yeah. this cover here, and so that's he he does the old style comic. Yeah, comic and it's art. very uh, it, it's interesting because it because it's it's a comic that has existed, but it didn't exist in this real context, right? So uh, you're kind of creating an old school, you know, uh, '60s, '70s. Well, and superhero. even they even color the pages yeah. um, beige to like the discoloring so, yeah. of the pages, and, and it's and it's uh, it's it's all half tones. Yep. And one of the things that I love is that uh, it's intentionally rudimentary. Yeah. Like there's one page that that we're both looking at the same page. <laughs> we each have a copy of this book in our hands. Uh, as we as we talk about it, uh, there's one page that's got the panels are so sort of obtuse that you have to have directional telling arrows. you which way to go. Yep, so because they hadn't nailed down how to uh, uh, lay out a panel in order to make it easy to read. So like mm-hmm. kind of the opposite of the of, of what we were talking about with uh, Stuart Eminent. So yeah, um, yeah, it, it, it's a and even at the if you go back uh, toward the end to page one thirty eight. Um, when they uh, at the very end here's the spoiler they the escapist becomes the original escapist because yeah. they the big company comes and wants to revitalize the it as it originally was um you get a very i think a 1980s kind of style or 1970s style art yeah. like the the half tones are are gone it looks like um, a doctor strange sort yeah. of uh, <laughs> uh, panels yeah yeah it's it's what i would consider to be i uh, the very classic sense of what a comic book looks like, right? Yeah. Not the, uh, not early comic books, but like that sort of comics in their heydays in right. the sixties and seventies, um, as opposed to the thirties and forties. Yeah, it, it's a it, it's a really interesting book. I and the characters, like all of Brian K. Vaughan's work, are really fleshed out and very real. Yeah, uh, they they. They seem like actual human beings. Their motivations are are very understandable, um, and uh, at no point are you ever left going like, "Why would they do that?" I don't right. understand why they would make that choice. And by the time that you get to the end of the story, um, when our heroes essentially lose, yeah, I, it, it's actually it's very similar to Scott Pilgrim in that sense, where Scott Pilgrim kind of. Uh, the the last book you're expecting to be this great big epic conclusion, yeah. and halfway through that last book, it just kind of just kind of starts to end, yeah. and and things don't go well for the hero. And in that one, he kind of pulls it out and turns it around and and ends up saving the day. But in this one, the the ending is the beginning. Right, yeah. and it's kind of it's funny because that's how the book starts. The book starts the, this is the beginning of the end, or something like that, um, or the end of the beginning, or something like that. Like he says it a couple of times, right, in the in the book, and really, it's all a story to get to that last page, which is uh, a, a blank slate. case holding up, a, yeah, yeah. A, a blank comic page, yeah, um, and and just them 
something like rather than try and recreate something from our past something that people love let's create something new let's let's go forward um which i it the thing that that kills me about it is that that's where it ends and i would really love it if it kept going <laughs> right if we got the next story but um i think the cool thing about it is that since it's a sequel to a book <laughs> by a different artist right by by a different author it leaves it open that five years from now somebody, somebody else, else could come along up. and pick up the character of the escapist and start telling the next story yeah right with with these characters that brian k vaughn created mm-hmm. um, which i would love to see and uh, i i think that the escapist mm-hmm. escapist would make a fantastic movie yeah um i think that there's a lot in there or probably better suited to something like a mini series right something like a, a very limited mini series one season sort of maybe you mean six this to 10 episodes this book the this this book this story itself yeah. not yeah. just the character the not escapist. just the character of the yeah. escapist but yeah. but yeah. you could you could get in there and flesh out some of the 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 escapist stuff cuz there's there's a lot of things that are alluded to that once the character took off there were TV shows and movies and stuff right. like that and a lot of sort of it, it 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 hit the highest of comic book highs and then disappeared off the map. Yeah. And I think that there's interesting stuff in there well, to explore. And then you should definitely this the book the the yeah. novel Cavalier and Clay fills in a lot of those gaps. Okay. And um, if you want to make a mini series out of this, it should start with the novel Cavalier yeah. and Clay and go through those guys because they have a rich and vibrant life and career that uh, would make make a good book I mean a good movie I am going to uh, I'll pick up the audio book at some point yeah cool and and give it a listen yeah you should it's uh, it's well worth it and it'll enhance this story the escapist story as well that's good because then that'll give me a good excuse for my third reading of the escapists and I can uh, revisit it again so um, and I haven't checked it out, but I, there's also the escapist books uh, or comics. I mean, okay. um, the ones that were published between these two things that yeah. that are strictly escapist comic books and deal with the escapist fictional escapist stories. Um, one of them is uh, Will Eisner's last work before he okay. died. Um, he he does one of the issues there, so that's kind of cool. I cool. haven't read that one yet though. Um, one one more point that I wanted to point out is uh, the 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 corporation that goes after them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the bad guys, and I find that really funny that um, the Dark Horse who published this book, yeah, um, who deals with licensed properties mostly, yeah, um, chooses or chooses to put the the big bad guy as as yeah. a corporation, kind of mimicking themselves in a sense. Yeah, um, uh, neat neat little touch there and. Uh, um, I guess it wouldn't be pos- the story wouldn't be told if that wasn't in there. I guess. Yeah, it would be a very different story. Yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, do we have an email about? Um, oh yeah, escapists. I I think I dropped it. <laughs> um, Julie writes in and says, "I enjoyed the escapist for the most part. I think I went in ill prepared. I've never read any of the escapist comics or the Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, but I feel the story stood on its own just fine, which." We agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate the shifts in the artwork pushing the story around, the little mixes of the Golden Age and the more illustrative work of Case. 
uh, really captured my attention, but I like the, uh, the darker moods and the grittier look. Comparatively, the drawn reality of Max and his friends seems so much brighter and cartoony, uh, though I don't think it took away from the gravity of their real-world challenges. If anything, it was a nice reminder that adversity in comics doesn't always have to look so dark and gritty to have impact. Hmm. Yeah, and that's a neat um, comment because that's one of the reasons I've turned away from the superhero books yeah. is because it's all dark and gritty. Yeah. Um, where's the fun Spider-Man that I used to read as a kid? Kind of, um, He's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. So... It doesn't always have to be so dark and gritty to have impact. Yeah. yeah. It goes on to say, um, I feel like an opportunity was missed with summarizing so much of the ending. It felt rushed. Uh, Max le- <laughs> um, learning to let go and move forward seems dependent on the support of his friends and Case's encounter, and less to do with his own epiphany. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, have you ever read Amazing Adventures of Cavalier McClay? We've already answered that question. And if so, does it yield a better understanding of the escapists? Does it give any more depth to Case's encounter in the diner? And she's referring to when she meets um, Clay, Joe Clay's um, grandson? Well, I can't remember. Yeah, grandson. Yeah. Um, and that inspires her to, to reconnect with the people that she's lost in touch with. Um to the ending, embracing, moving forward, freedom, and the potential for new creation, etc., makes me curious to read Brian Vaughn's saga. I'd like to see how his writing works when it's purely his own concept. Mm. Yeah, so I, I will say, uh, just jumping back to one of those earlier points, Brian K. Vaughn has a little bit of trouble with the dismount. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, yeah, I still haven't finished Why the Last Man because I love that story so much that uh, from what I've heard about the last volume, <laughs> yeah. it just falls off okay. right at the end. Um, he's really great at telling a story and creating these great characters, but when it comes to wrapping things up, he tends to rush it or go in weird directions in order to finish a story. Yeah, so, and I felt that way with Pride of Baghdad when I read that. It's mm-hmm. like it has it's a great story. Love it. Another one of those kind of anti-war stories yeah. that doesn't focus on the military side yeah. of it. Pride of Baghdad is something that will eventually come up. We'll, oh, okay. We'll, we'll get there at some point. Well, then just yeah. a brief comment about the ending. It does feel very abrupt, and that's, of yeah. course, because of the... I'm not going to give anything away there if we're going to talk about it later, but um, it, it's, it's very abrupt, and he doesn't spend any time wrapping things up, and that might just be because war is like that. But um, Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it, it is a... Um, it's a pattern with him uh, when when it's his stories and he tells them from from start to finish, they tend to they tend to meander towards the end and mm-hmm. then just kind of fall apart and then it's just over. Um, but I, for me, the ending on this because it's such a non-ending, I don't feel like Max needs to have that epiphany there. I think the real epiphany comes from Case. Uh, I think that... Uh, um, sorry, what's the other guy's name? Um, it is... Um, Denny. Denny. Denny, Denny yeah. Jones. I think Denny is... Uh, he's a very self-realized person from the moment that we meet him. Right. When he's a teenager, right? Yeah. When, when he helps Max 
that first time. He's he knows who he is. He's happy with who he is, and there's nothing else. There's no further character development for him. Well, and his there, purpose, he's just along for the ride. But his purpose is to assure Max of himself. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um. And and also, I like he's because he's the one who ends up putting on the costume for their publicity stunt. Yeah. So I think that there is an element of it that Max looks at him in a heroic sort of way because he saves them right that, right that's his introduction so um so yeah i do i think that they if anybody has a full arc in this story they they it's it's probably case because she kind of uh meets them joins up has fun and then has to leave and then has her epiphany comes back mm-hmm. and that's where the next story begins right and i think that where uh, if if we're going to talk uh, the hero's journey, um, the call to adventure at the beginning uh, for for Max isn't really a call to adventure. He's he's the one bringing the others along on an adventure. For him, and, it's closure. Yeah, for both yeah. of his parents. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the end of the story is really his call to adventure yeah it's when his life begins as a story right as as that narrative structure so for me the fact that he doesn't get wrapped up in a nice little bow kind of works um and all it does is leave me wanting more right Right, so that's what a good book should do most of the time so but i i think that that wraps it up yeah i think that's everything that's all three of our books i if you have suggestions you can send in your suggestions to the pullboxpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on our website at the uh, pullboxpodcast.com and on all of our social media. Uh, Twitter is at pullboxpodcast and Facebook is facebook.com slash pullboxpodcast. But before we go, yep. we're going to leave you guys with your uh, with your polls for next month. Yes, May polls. Do you want to start? Yeah, or, sure. Yeah. So my my choice for next month uh, is uh, Volume One of the new IDW Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, it's uh, it it's it, I I don't know what to say about it to get you guys to read it other than it's probably the best Ninja Turtles story that's been written today. Whoa! So I uh, it, it's uh, that's that's lofty, but at the same time, not really. Um, there's really the original comics and then there's what we know as the classic uh, uh, 80's cartoons and comics but the IDW stuff takes it in a fresh direction a very modern take while holding true to everything that you love about the turtles so we'll have a lot to talk about when we talk about that because uh, there is the Michael Bay produced film coming out so there's a lot of opinions around that and I'm sure that we'll hear from you guys on on that aspect of things as well but that's my poll so that we can have some awesome perfect Turtles goodness uh, going on and I can promote that so that so that maybe we can drown out the the Michael Bay produced (laughs) stuff but what's what's your pick so I'm picking uh, Road to Perdition by Max Allen Collins and Richard Pierce Rayner and most people will know this graphic novel from its movie uh, of the same name starring Tom Hanks. Uh, this is a like a crime gangster graphic novel and um, it's it's just a g- 
great story from a guy who really knows how to write gangster stories. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that, and we can talk about it a little bit more next month. Cool. And our third pick, um, I have to remember. It's Powers. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. By, 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 uh, by Brian Michael Bendis Brian, and Brian Michael, Michael Avenoming. Yeah, so uh, we got more Bendis next month. Yeah, I was thinking that. It's, uh, yeah. um, we'll have to branch out in the next um, month. <laughs> yeah, but Jonathan Spees uh, he, uh, suggested that one for us. So uh, so that's going to be our reader poll yeah. for, for May. Uh, I think this is a good mix as well. We have yeah. uh, um, we have some pop culture in there. Yeah. Um, we got we've got some gritty fiction and like some more superheroes, but from a uh, from a different perspective. Which yeah. Is yeah. Cool. And powers is something that I've really been wanting to read. So when that suggestion came in, it was like, well, that's a good excuse. Nice. Um, although volume one apparently not in print, I guess. Oh. I, I the only thing you can get right now is a hardcover. Uh, special edition volume one that's like volume one and volume two put together oh really like okay yeah, like i'll have to lend edition. you my copy then yeah 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 so i uh, cool well that's it for us on this month's pull box podcast thank you guys for listening we don't have a sign off yet because it's a new podcast oh yeah well maybe we can uh pull the crowd and see what yeah we'll solicit you guys for uh for for a sign off if you guys have any suggestions uh until next month uh, i'm mike and i'm curtis thanks for